Welcome to the Energetic Radio Podcast. My name is Dale Sidebottom. Each week, I'll bring you inspirational guests who will help you bring fun, energy, and purpose into your lives. Let the show begin. Welcome to episode number 185 of the podcast. Today, we're joined by Jonathan Creek. Now, I had the pleasure of watching Jonathan in action, and he was the MC for TEDx Docklands 2020. And I think one of the hardest gigs I've ever done is being MC. You've got to get, you've got to be funny, you've got to be professional, you've got to get your timing right, um, you've got to read the audience. And I felt that Jonathan absolutely nailed it. Uh, as well as that, I had the pleasure of, you know, sitting near him. So I got to know him quite well throughout the day. And um, we started talking about everything he's done, where he was a reporter uh, for Today Tonight. He went all over the world doing that. Um, and recently, the work he's been doing around videos um, and presenting and keynoting. And I just got along really well with him. I love his energy. And you're going to find out today, he's got some fantastic stories um, that all relate back to, at the end of the day, making a powerful video. Video. And let's be honest, audio and video are the way to go. People don't want to read anymore. So this is going to give you some great insight into algorithms, um, people's attention span, and how to catch that with the perfect video. So guys, this is Jonathan Creek in episode number 185. Welcome back to the podcast. I am very excited. Now, today's guest, I have just been on his fantastic live video show, hashtag keynote speaker, Jonathan Creek. How are you, buddy? Hello, Dale. Thank you very much. Mate, now, we had the pleasure of meeting. You were the MC, the one of the best MCs I've seen. Your energy and charisma on the stage was next level, and I really enjoyed um, the way that you were able to have a laugh at yourself, but then you're also a little bit risque with a couple of your, your little jokes, I thought. Have you done much emceeing of like events like that? Not a lot of emceeing. Um, my background, for people who don't know, and, and Dale and I met at TEDx uh, in February, uh, I was a TV reporter for uh, nearly 20 years, uh, so standing in front of people and, and talking is something I've always wanted to do. You know, a lot of people shy away from public speaking and stuff like that, but I, I like it. Um, I, you know, I wasn't a great sportsman. I wish I was a great sportsman. <laughs> um, but I was still hunting that buzz, that high of this is the moment when I have to perform. And uh, TV delivered that for me for a long time. And, and now I'm, I'm in love with the stage. And emceeing is part of that. Um, yeah, it was, I enjoyed the day and I like being a little bit I think you understand it. If if you're a little bit cheeky, but you're also you know not too serious about yourself, then you can get away with being a bit cheeky. You know, if, if as long as you as long as you stir yourself up first, or take take the Mickey out of yourself first, then that gives you a little bit more of a license to be cheeky uh, with those in the crowd. So true, so true. I think I think when you go straight at someone, it's an attack. Whereas when you do it to yourself, like I said before on your show, it really it's all about building those relationships. And if people can see that you're happy to take the Mickey out of yourself, like you just said, um, I totally agree. Now we are going to get to your TV reporting because I'm very excited about this. I want I've never really spoke to a TV reporter before and get the ins and outs. And obviously, there's a lot of reporting going on at the moment. But that yeah. all started for you at a young age, mate. Your first job, you created your own radio station 
Yeah, well, my first job as a kid. Yeah, yeah I created, created my own little uh, radio station that had a broadcast range of about, uh, I reckon, about 350 meters, <laughs> and, and, and got shorter and shorter every time that the battery got flat. Uh, but yeah, that that was that was what I did as a as a young kid, as a with an entrepreneurial spirit. Is that um, yeah, everyone else had lemonade stands, and I thought, well, you know what, I'm going to set up a broadcasting media company and and get paid in lemonade so i never had to pay for lemonade in my life because i'd just uh, do contra deals with ads <laughs> i love that and that's uh, the old barter system i think there's a bit through that um so from that obviously you enjoyed the presenting you love being you know on the end of the mic um did you always think you're going to be destined behind the camera you know do the tv reporting i think what happened was that um yeah, I, I was born in the mid in the mid seventies. So by the time uh, the mid eighties came around, that was when I was really starting to focus on life and and what I might like to do. And that was at the same time that uh, video cameras, home video cameras, became available. Um, not that we had one because they were incredibly expensive, but for me, they were the new tech. And, you know, I was into Nintendo Game and Watches, video games, remote control cars, and then there here were these things called cameras, and, and they were so expensive they wouldn't let kids touch them. You know, if you knew someone with one, um, they wouldn't let you touch them. So that made me want to learn more. And, you know, probably seriously from about the age of 13 or 14, I always knew I wanted to be a journalist. Um the automatic response for everyone in my life was, oh, you know, you're going to go and be a sports reporter, be a sports reporter, be a sports reporter. That's the last thing I wanted to be. Um, the next thing they'd say to me was, oh, you want to be the news reader? You're going to sit on camera and read the news? I was like, no, no. I'd been into a TV station. I'd seen that these news readers just sit in a studio and read other people's words off an auto cue. You know, quite possibly one of the most boring jobs on the planet. <laughs> I don't want that. And, and, and it took me, uh, yeah, I wasn't mature enough to work out what it was that was driving me to this. But when I look back on it now, um, I had an, a, an older neighbor next door and he was the postmaster out in uh, Mount Waverley. And um, he had a daughter and, I, and she was older than me and he never had a son. And I was the youngest of three and he and I were really good mates. Uh, he was funny. He was into horse racing. He got me into horse racing. He'd take me to the TAB. I'd pick up the tickets. He'd sort through. Yeah, it was like emu picking to see if anyone had dropped winning tickets. <laughs> uh, he'd pay me in minties and, and Coca-Cola. Um, and he was just a really good guy. But the thing that attracted me to him is he knew all the news in the street. And I knew all the news in the street. But we were operating at different levels. So he knew all the adult news and I knew all the kid news. And what we used to do is we used to get together while he was watching the races and share news. Some people call it gossip. But, <laughs> I was going to um, say, that's, <laughs> mate, that is gossip. <laughs> yeah, but we were almost operating separate to each other and, and people didn't really cotton on for a long, long time that we were sharing stuff. And there's stuff that you know kids, while you're riding your bikes in the street, would share. And, you know, I'd take that back and, and would link it all together. And between the two of us, we knew everything that was going on in the street. <laughs> and, you know, information is power. 
in a sense. Um, and I took great delight in knowing stuff or letting people know stuff that they didn't know. <laughs> That's blackmail as well, isn't it? <laughs> I never blackmailed, <laughs> but there was a certain attraction to being considered knowledgeable. Okay. I like that. I like the yeah. knowledgeable. And this, and this is an, you know, we're talking a seven, eight, nine-year-old kid <laughs> who, who adults would come to and say, oh, do you know that, um, you know, the driving lights were stolen off the Ford down the road. Um, you know, do you know who took them? And you'd be like, no, I don't know who took them. Give me a day. <laughs> I'll sort it. And within a day, yeah, you'd know, I'd know who took them. But to protect myself, you know, I'd tell Brian, the older guy next door, and then he'd let them know. So I wasn't the one dobbing or letting it out. <laughs> You're the middle that's, person. Yeah. So oh, it was either I was going to be an investigative journalist or I was going to be a policeman or a, spy. Or, you know, a detective or a spy. <laughs> I still do have dreams of being a spy, but um, I don't think it's what the movies make it out to be. I don't think it is either. <laughs> <laughs> so obviously, Holly Jonathan, you are very good at sniffing out stories and, and finding it and reporting it and, and doing it in a... I suppose through your radio station, but then also figuring out with different sources, like with Brian. Um, over the twenty odd years of reporting, have you got any? Have you got one story that really stands out as like a hairy situation or an embarrassing moment or, or something like that? Uh, I think there's a there's a few different ones in different categories. I think probably one of the most dangerous things I ever did was um, uh, I went and bought organs. Uh, kidneys from the philippines what? and had them transferred into a into a uh, into an australian woman um and that was interesting she was yeah she was pregnant um she her kidneys were failing and she was on the waiting list here in australia and the the transplant just wasn't going to happen in time and if she'd gone into labor into birth then probably her and the baby would were both going to die so the clock was ticking for her and, you know, she, she rang the show that I was working at at the time. I took the call and, you know, my whole thing of working, I, was, I used to work at Today Tonight, which is, um, as my dad used to say, I was the best reporter on the worst show on TV. <laughs> uh, but I used to argue with him that, you know, you've actually got to look under the surface of that show and beyond the hype and, and, and what that show and A Current Affair are really good at was helping the people who'd fallen through the cracks of society, um, the people who were trapped, couldn't have, you know, they'd been ripped off by con men, and the only way they could get their money back was to launch an expensive court case. Well, yep. they can't do it because the con men's taken all their money. So who do they turn to? The police can't help. Um, yeah, so yeah, they'd come to a show like ours, and we, you know, ninety percent of the time we'd get results. So this woman, uh, she was one of these. She was one of these people who was sort of stuck in a in a in a system that wasn't working for her and and through talking to her we found out that she was uh, part Filipino. Um, so we went to the Philippines and, um, you know, un completely undercover, hidden cameras, um, you know, bought her an organ. Wow. Hey, and, was that hairy? Yeah, it was hairy. Um, and we went to the we went to the slums, like to the because in the Philippines there's these slums where they actually live in the garbage, they actually live in the tip. 
oh. and they build caves out of the rubbish and yeah, you know, it's horrific what the condition these hum these humans live in. Yeah, that's the key and, word, isn't it? Humans. Yeah, it's hard to imagine that humans, yeah, that we other humans allow humans to live like that in a way because we're, we're so righteous about how good we are, um, but really we're not when you look beyond the the surface and. Um, what was happening, and you know, this story allowed us to shine a light on a bigger issue too, which was there were people there who were happy to sell their kidneys, but the agents that were doing the deals were ripping them off. So, um, yeah, this hospital that I went to, which was government run, and I'm at the risk of um, having Filipino spy government spies come <laughs> visit me right now by talking about this, but um, <laughs> uh, the hospital was three levels, and um, the top level was full of Europeans, Americans, Australians, right? And they were the patients. They were sick. They were the ones who were sick and needed the transplant. The middle level was the operating theatres and the bottom level was the donators. And there were these agents. And, they, you know, you talk about slick car salesmen, these guys were the, like, these guys were slick. <laughs> and they were, you know, they were getting maybe 20 grand US for a kidney and and the hospital would get maybe two and a half grand of that, 20. And the person donating the kidney would get two and a half grand. Wow, so they're making 15K US in their pocket. Yeah, and and to me, you know, two and a half grand to these people is a lot, but, um, you know, not a fair deal in my mind. So, you know, my my story was, A, let's, let's save this lady um, because we can, but B, let's make sure that these people get the right share of the cash and we actually turned it around where the agents ended up yeah they'd get two and a half grand and the other people would get life-changing money and i still remember the guy that donated his kidney to this woman his name was alfredo um his him and his family had two kids and essentially they just lived in a concrete box like you'd see at the old rspca in burwood wow yeah and we were able to give him. We were able to give him fifteen grand US. And that, and that for like that, as you said, that would have changed his life. He would have been able to actually probably get a house. He'd be the king for. He'd be the. He could live like a king in the Philippines for five years on that. Wow. And I suppose that that's where you see. I don't know. I can only go by things I've seen on the TV, and I remember watching today, tonight, in a current affair, and you'd see you'd you'd see yourself newsporter chasing after these con men in the cars and and things yeah. like that, but um. You also, with that side of the job, you would have dealt with some absolute scumbags, but then you also would have been, you know, get that really nice feeling when you were able to help, you know, like the people you just saying, Alfredo, or, you know, the people who have been conned. It must have been a really sort of double-edged sword, like you're dealing with the scum of the scum, but then you're also helping people that really need it. Yeah, there's one family that really, um, that, re that I still think about, actually, and we're talking, you know, nearly 10, 15 years later, um, there was a family uh, living down in a, in a suburb here in outer, the outer suburbs of Melbourne called Five Ways. And this family was a family of uh, six, so parent, uh, two parents, four kids, all of them deaf, fully deaf. And they'd paid a builder to build them a, a nice big ranch-style family home. I think they'd paid the builder about 280 grand to build the house, so about right for the market. And he built the frame and put the roof on and then skipped town. And the build was a disaster. Like this place was going to have to get barreled. 
And this family, while the, the house was being built, moved into their shed. So they had a bit, a bit more than a garage, but they had a shed. And um, I did a story on them every year for five years. Every year? Every year for five years, giving updates. What's going on with this family? Where's the builder? Now, we actually progressed the situation through the courts for them. They couldn't afford to go to court, so we did it. Um, press charges, you know, um, set up hearings, VCAT, all that sort of stuff, went through the system for them, uh, prepared their paperwork, you know, because they couldn't afford lawyers, and pursued this guy, this builder. And we got to the point where we got the ruling in our favour uh, that he was to pay the money back. And... Um, I remember that was a great feeling and we celebrated on the steps of, you know, the, I think it was the, the Supreme court from memory. And that was great. And then we got the, the service order. So, you know, the, the sheriff gets an order of, you know, you've been served. Here's the ruling. You now have, you know, the countdown clocks on, you've got 30 days to pay this money or we're going to wind up your business and seize your assets sort of stuff. And I remember taking that to the court and, serving it and saying, okay, where, where's the paperwork? And they said, yeah, we'll serve it once we find him. We waited a year and the court was like, nah, can't find him, can't find him, haven't been able to serve it, unsuccessful, can't find him. And there's a really interesting thing that you can do in Melbourne is that anyone, and I didn't know this, this was an interesting, I didn't know this until I spoke to a lawyer friend and um, anyone can serve documents. And so I'm like, really? I'm going to serve these documents. So we gave the court a year to find this guy and they couldn't find and they, him. So a whole year and they like had nothing. Couldn't find him. I went to the court and got the papers. Said, where are the, where are the papers that I need to serve on this guy? And they gave me the papers. I found him in 24 hours. <laughs> That's great. Right. Coming out of a pie shop down on Phillip Island and, you know, the look on his face was – you know, holy bananas, and oh, gee, I really want to kill this kid. <laughs> I bet. Like, this, kid, this kid's been giving me the irrits for five years. <laughs> He's wrecking my life. <laughs> he now knows where I live. I can't hide from him. I can't get away. Can't get a pie. And, and they were, and and by serving the documents, that started a chain of events, which then opened up the insurance for the family to at least recover. I think about two hundred grand. Which was allowing them to get back on and get going with life again. Yeah, and it probably it'd never repay the, what they've gone through, but at least there's something. And I suppose that's sort of the thing that's coming out of that. That you know, people can and they wouldn't have been able to get that without you. Not a chance. No, they were stuck. And you know what was what really sticks with me is that the first time I filmed this family, I got them all to to line up. So the two parents at the back and the and the four kids and stand in front of the frame of the house. Now, five years later, we're lining, I line them up in the same shot. And you're talking about a five-year-old kid that was about two foot. Was it that the last time I did the story? I reckon he was six foot. Wow. And you look at that and you go, that kid's childhood has been spent sleeping in a shed. Yeah, and, that, and that's the hardest thing about that is that, you know, we talk about the unhumane conditions overseas. Well, then you look at what's going on, and, and we both live in Melbourne, which is, you know, one of the most livable cities in the world, but obviously their conditions are nowhere near where they should be. No, and, you know, and this is how I, 
yeah, this is there was there was definitely things about that show that annoyed me, but this is how I justified doing it for myself was that for the moments of gratitude and greatness where I could help, there was probably going to be two or three supermarket stories or bank stories in between. Yeah. So it wasn't, right. there was, there was sort of, you had to wait for the ones you wanted and you had to do the things you didn't want to sort of sell your soul because you knew that was the job. It was the price I was prepared to pay. Yep. Yep. And, and I suppose that's sort of where I know you said you've done it for 20 odd years and you actually, and you love it. And I know you love the videos. How hard was it? Because we're going to talk about now the work you're doing. You've worked for yourself for, I think about six or seven years now. I think we we're talking about before. Um, how mm. hard was it to, because as you said, you had your dream job. And I know there are so many people out there, and I went through the same thing, Jonathan, that I had a really good job, but I was like, it's just not fulfilling me. I know there's more out there for me. How hard was it for you to finally back yourself and say, right, no, I'm going to go all in on what I want to do? Like, was that a, a gradual thing or did, did it happen in the shower one morning? Talk us through it. Uh, no, mine's probably a little bit unique. Um, and there are things I can go into and can't go into, but... Um, I, I'm a bit of, I, I became very self-destructive, um, in that, in that I didn't want to make the call. So when you've got a wife, you know, you've got kids, you've got a mortgage, the last thing you want to do is give up, uh, your job. But I decided probably, I should, probably should have left two years earlier, I think. Yep. But I just got to a point where I was just, I was just so sick of it. I just had to get out. Um, and it was the politics that was really getting me. Um, and so I just, I got out and it was a terrible time and it took a lot of heat. Uh, I took a lot of heat. My family dealt with a lot of stress through that time. I remember my, uh, my mum just was, she just couldn't understand it. She, she herself was a school teacher for 35 years um, she'd come from a pretty rough background and childhood herself. So she was really worried and didn't believe that you could make money on your own. Like that just wasn't safe wasn't enough to do, her. you know, yeah, and that's yeah. fair enough. Where my dad, my dad, he's probably more of an entrepreneur and more of an event inventor. Um, but he also had been locked into corporate world and was really successful, um, in, in the gas industry as the head of the gas association, he's got an order of Australia. You know, he's a really high achiever, but I think if you would appeal the layers back on him, he'd actually sit there and go, you know what? I was actually tortured all those years. Cause I'm an entrepreneur and wish I'd been able to do what you do. Ah, so he's sort of living through you. He sort of said, go for it. Yeah. So he sort of, he sat down with me and, you know, after the initial, you know, couple of weeks of where, you know, I just had to adjust. And, and I think probably the hardest, transition was when you've worked in news and current affairs for that long there's a real high pressure period of every day and that's from about 3 30 to 6 o'clock we've just got to get stuff done and there's no missing like your deadline is your deadline yeah well you've got to have the content don't you yeah if you don't have that show ready you don't have your your video done uh black goes to air and it's you know there's hundreds of thousands of dollars riding on it you know because they hand out refunds if the show doesn't go right yeah so what i found is when i hopped out of that environment and started working from home is that i would get a lot of work done and then at say 3 30 4 o'clock things would be easing off and i had no more people to call 
you know, there was, and I'd get really anxious because I was quiet and that made me nervous at a time when I'd been conditioned to know this is the time when you have to ramp up. This is the time when you have to go. This is deadline time. And I'm not the only TV news journalist that ex- has experienced this. Um, and I speak to a lot of former colleagues when, cause they're now hopping out and um, you know, the media industry is going through massive changes and yeah, there's almost this deadline syndrome that you suffer from and it's like an understimulation. And that was really hard um, to deal with. But my dad being the good fellow that he is, you know, he gave me about a month to six weeks just to settle down and, and you know, have a bit of a break. And then he sat me down and said, right, come around. We're going to sit down. We're going to do a business plan. And uh, I've never done a dis- business plan in my life. I think we did it, and it's been put in the drawer, and I've never looked at it ever again. But, um... <laughs> Isn't that great? I can't say I've done a business plan. What was the process like? It was just really refining um, what you're going to do and how you're going to do it, and what some targets were, the purpose. I'm really, I'm really big on purpose-based um, branding. And, and that comes from my background in storytelling that, you know, if you're just telling a story and there's no purpose or lesson to it, it's just a bit of a meh, you know, that saying M-E-H, where it's just like, yeah, people don't really engage with it. But if you've got a purpose and a, and a drive behind it that people can buy into, um, then you're going to be much, yeah, you're going to have greater success and greater connection. And I say this, you've got to be real, you've got to be relevant and you've got to be relatable. Mm. And you've got a brand that's driven by a purpose then that allows people to connect to something and join your movement and and i think out of that comes this whole tribe talk i think it's an overused word yeah i I see what you mean yep but that's where it comes from and when i came out of uh, the media i went and uh, got into business with a guy by the name of simon hammond now simon hammond's probably one of the greatest branding marketing guys in australia i think he's written about five best-selling books um yeah, he's worked with companies like uh, T2, Smiggle, you know, NAB, like top brands. And he was really good for me because, A, he's a former journal as well. So it sort of showed me where journalism can take you and, and where your strengths are in terms of the modern world. Um, what, he, what he had in branding and smarts um, really engaged me because I love that sort of strategy undoing a problem, how do you solve it? It's a continually moving problem, branding and marketing and connecting and where's your next audience and how do you bring them in and, and that sort of stuff. Um, so he he was really good for me and I spent a couple of years with him. What he was lacking was his understanding of social media. And yeah, this, we're talking 2013, 2014, where video on social media was really taking off. And I'd been researching YouTube and viral videos in my own time since 2009. Um, so I think me, uh, spending time with him uh, over those two years, working with him, watching how he works and consulted to some of the biggest brands in the in 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 Australia, then allowed me to say, okay, I've got this skill set about how to tell stories that really connect and really grab people's attention but then buying into his branding and, and marketing smarts of how do we then trigger them to act on the back end of that video. Um, 
to then drive business. And so it was that coming together that said, okay, well, here's my here's my business model. This is my strengths. And then throw on top of that viral videos. Um, what is it the viral videos have that other videos don't? Yeah, and this is, mate, this is, I wanted to talk about this because I remember one of the first things we spoke about in February at TED was that this video algorithm research you did, I was, I'm really fascinated about it. So obviously, you know, audio and video is such a big thing these days because people are lazy. They don't want to read blogs anymore. They don't want to read the newspaper. Um, what were some of the main sort of findings? And do you want to explain it a little bit better? Because you sort of gave me a spin on it the other day, but I found it really fascinating. I'm sure other people will as well. Yeah, so essentially, um, so taking me back to, to my news days, uh, as a journalist uh, at a big media company, I had endless resources. You know, I had a researcher, I had a producer, I had access to some of the best cameramen in the country, I had access to helicopters, um, I had access to traveling overseas, you know, I could go anywhere, meet anyone, tell any story I wanted. Now, when I'd create those stories and put them to air, um, on television, you know, in the heyday of Today Tonight and, and a current affair, you know, we'd be pulling a million viewers, maybe just under, maybe 800,000 versus 900,000. That was about the fight that we were in. And it was the most competitive landscape um, in TV, that 6.30 slot, a current affair versus Today Tonight. No more competitive spot on the planet. And that's what I loved. But I'm doing these stories that are getting, say, 800,000 views on TV uh, through the ratings box and I'm obsessed with the internet and I'm looking at kids with handy cams, like the sort of handy cams I used to play with in the eighties and they're pulling a million views and the, and the vision's rough, no production quality, the audio's bad, you know, but there's things going on in those videos that are capturing people's attention and getting them views. And so my whole thinking was self-serving at the time. No doubt about it. What are they doing in their videos to grab people's attention and get the views? And how can I steal it or learn from it and inject that same uh, remedy or ingredient into my stories? Because if I become if I become the journalist on TV who's making stories that people tune in to watch, then I'll be able to demand a bigger salary. Mm, that's and that, that is so true. And and like you just said, I think a lot of the time when people go to me, oh, I want to start a podcast, I want to do a YouTube channel, I don't have the best equipment. It doesn't matter. Like you just said, a lot of these are being filmed on cameras and stuff now, aren't they? Phones. Yep. Yeah. If you got a, if you got an iPhone eight or newer, you got more than enough. It's not. It's and this is what I teach. So. So to go back a little bit, so what I started to do is I started to research viral videos. And I got to a point, uh, I got to a point where I believe I'd watched every video on YouTube. <laughs> and how many this was before it was big. Oh, like, okay, because then there millions uploaded every day. I was like, Maybe. Oh, now I've got, I got no chance now. No <laughs> hope at all now. But back then, like, yeah. I was struggling. Yeah, I'd go into YouTube and go, oh, I've seen it, seen it, seen it, seen really? it, seen it. And, wouldn't, and just would just give up, would hop out. Um, so I started to research viral videos and I, I, I started doing it haphazardly a bit, sort of, you know, once my wife had gone to bed, I'd sit in my office and I'd watch videos and I'd say, Oh, what are they doing here? And what, you know, are they using story structures? Are they using pattern interrupts? You know, what are they doing 
to get the attention. Why is this one better than this one? You know, you get videos that are almost the same, even on the same topics, and one would have a million, you know, one would have 400,000 views and one would have four. And you're like, what is going on here? So there's a lot of work going into the algorithm, which was always changing, and how is YouTube serving this content up? And, and, and yes, that plays a role. But what I discovered, and I dissected over 1,200 viral videos. So they had to go viral, and then I would reverse research them, basically pick them apart. And what I found is that there is no one formula for viral video success. Like, I can't give you a script and say, Dale, if you follow this script step by step, you're going to go viral. It doesn't exist, sadly. But there is a pattern. There is a pattern that takes place in a human brain when you cater to the human brain and how it's wired for stories that will then a grab attention, put people into the feeling mode. And then if you've got the right elements and you put them in there, you can then trigger them to take an action. Gotcha. And I suppose that's the whole idea behind a video, isn't it? It's like telling a story. You want to hook them in, you want to tell them something, but then you want uh, a sort of a point of view or you want something to lead off after that. So then they take action and that could be a product or something essentially. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I would even steer away from putting products in the back of your videos. Um, Yeah. The platforms are smart enough now to allow you to, build your audience and then strategically strike with your sell uh, because every time you sell you do hurt you do hurt your engagement there's mm-hmm. no doubt about it yeah um so on the back of these learnings what i actually started to see after dissecting over 1200 yeah we're talking six months of watching videos every night between 9 30 and 1 30 in the morning like there's a lot of videos that's watching a lot of content mate and you know People thought I was mad and I was like, no, no, I want to crack the code to viral videos. And yeah, because it, it, because it wasn't just luck. Back then people thought it was luck, but I'm a, I'm a conspiracy theorist journalist. There's no such thing as luck. You know, if these kids are creating these videos and, and during that era, 2009 to 2012, we started to see channels like Ray William Johnson and equals three equals three and all these businesses, all these, channels that became businesses starting to create viral videos over and over and over again. And so that took the luck out of it. If these kids, essentially that's what they were, can repeat the pattern and repeat getting these views, there's got to be a formula. And so that was my search. That was my one man PhD. Uh, It took me around the world. I got to speak to Hollywood directors about it. I got to speak to scientists, psychologists, you know, this was supposed to be a six-month thing. It ended up being three years. Wow. But what came out of it was what I call the variable formula. And basically, the variable formula measures, uh, it's like market research. You play a video to people sitting in a room with a scorecard, and this is what we used to do. Um, the people tick the boxes of how they felt and, and how they engaged with the video, and it would spit out a score. And the score was out of 100. Now, if they scored higher than 80 out of 100, we knew that they were likely to share that video. Now, it's not a perfect science, but it's about 87% accurate. Gotcha. So so we started doing that with brands. So brands would make videos for social media that say, is this video going to work? And would say, well, who's your target demographic? Oh, well, women age 40 to 50. Okay, let's get 100 women age 40 to 50, sit them in a room. 
we'll play them the video. We'll get them to score on the scorecards, which I just laminated on my wife's prep classroom laminator. <laughs> the old and, laminator beauty, yeah. Yeah, and they ticked the boxes, and yeah, you know, I knew the formula, so I I knew the numbers to to plug in, and it would get out a score, and and you know it's not that much different to how supermarkets test their home brand products before they put them to market. I don't know if you know how they do this, but Coles over in Taronga in Melbourne, they've got a bunker down the bottom of that head office. And it's basically just a room partitioned into a whole lot of different desks. And they get people in there, say women aged 40 to 50, and say they've made a muesli that they want to compete with just right or something like that. And they make their own version of it. They sit these people in the room, they remove the lights, so they change the colour of the room to say red light or blue light or green light, so you can't see the colour of the cereal. And basically, they just feed through these little slots, different bowls of cereal. And every time the the women aged 40 to 50 eat the cereal, they score it. Now, Coles doesn't release a home brand unless it ranks in the top two of all the cereals on the market. Wow. So that so that's essentially I didn't think we we're gonna to get to this, but essentially home brands the top two percent. Yeah. The home brand the home and they're not yeah, home brands have got a bad reputation because they used to be really bad. But the supermarket brands, so the Coles brands and the Woolworth brands, are gonna be quality because they do this testing. Ah. And so it's exactly the same as what you were saying with your videos that um, why wouldn't you do the same? If you're going to post something out there that you want people to share, like like Coles and Safeway, they want people to eat it and then tell other people about it. It's essentially the same with a video. Exactly. And I'd seen this Coles process as a journalist over and over and over again. And I was fascinated with it. I was like, okay, this is how they do it. So then how do you do it with video? And that was my business model was market research for content. How can you measure whether this video is going to work or not before you go and spend, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars in Facebook advertising dollars to spread it? Why not see if you could just spread it for free by making it viral? Yeah. Now this was this was okay, Dale. This was you know for me this was a great, you know I'm not a, I'm not a great businessman. I'm I'm a, I'm a creator, um, and so this this was okay, but the as the reputation for the business grew, I started to deal with smarter and smarter people. And one day I was uh, working uh, with a big corporation and they'd spent a lot of money making a video, uh, making an, it was an ad, it wasn't a video, it was an ad. And I told them, don't make an ad, make a, <laughs> make a video, <laughs> tell a story, but no, they made an ad. And so anyway, we put the ad into the market research and it scored really badly. Like the lowest I've ever scored a video. Like, and they, pay, they paid for it. And and I remember going in there and reporting back and going, look, yeah, this this, this video is just not going to work. It fails in this step, this step, and this step. And that was the beauty of the formula is that it could tell you where your mistakes were, the areas that you needed to improve. I said, look, it's not connecting here. It's not, rela- it's not real. It's not relevant. It's not relatable. You know, it's not getting that feeling. Uh, it's not triggering the switch in the brain that, that makes decisions. You've got to amp this up and that up. And I just remember, just you know, like every other time I'd done it, just delivering it. And this marketing manager guy, just you know, you could just see he was just going redder and redder and redder, and steam was coming out of his ears. And 
he just looked at me and said, it would have been good if you'd been able to tell us this before we'd actually made the video. <laughs> and I said, it would have been good if you'd actually engaged me to make the video for you and you wouldn't be here. <laughs> you can you, you can ask me that, but don't hire me after the fact. Yeah, and don't, don't make it as my fault that I didn't tell you. Yeah, when I wasn't even involved in the project. <laughs> now, what I learned after was that the creative concept for that, that ad was his. So it was personal uh, for him. They didn't like being told it was bad. Correct. But I remember driving home after that, and I was driving along the Eastern Freeway, and I remember being completely numb, and I was just like, uh, I've got a big hole in my business model here um, because I'm going to keep being found out. Well, not found out, but I'm going to keep getting these accusations of, well, this is good. You know, We've already spent the 200 grand making the ad. How can you... How can you help us do it before we spend the money? You know, and I could see that that's where the business was going. So I was like, okay, I've I've got to pivot the business in the sense of I have to start educating them on how to make the videos properly from the beginning, not tell them what they've done wrong after the fact. Yeah. So get be proactive instead of reactive because, like you just said, the damage is already done. You know, they've already put out the 100, 200 grand or whatever to make this video and then you're telling them. So was that a yeah. hard process to switch around? You're like, okay, like like with your videos, you know, you're scoring it and you can see if you're scoring your business that you've got a good model, but it's not essentially what everyone needs. No, that's right. So so while I was all in on, on the formula and the market research, I was like, okay, um, how do I how do I flip this? How do I reverse engineer this to educate people? And, and so I, you know, it took me six months to work backwards and build the modules and the training and everything that was needed to reverse engineer it. Um, but at the same time, I was, I, I sort of have this, um, I love the underdog. I've always loved a good underdog story. If, if, you know, all my favorite movies are about underdogs <laughs> and, and at the time, I was getting really frustrated with corporate. Uh, you know, I, you know, in a way, working for a big media company, you are in corporate. Um, I was going through a rebellious time in my life, um, and I was like, I'm really sick of these corporates where I'd go in with creative concepts for videos that I know would work online. Like here's here's the creative, here's the video, and then you'd present it, and you know, the chief financial officer would say, oh, I don't like that bit. Can you change it? Or the marketing manager would say, oh, can you change this bit? And then the CEO would say, can you change this bit? And then, yeah, the kid working in the canteen would say, oh, no, you need to change this bit. <laughs> and, and and you'd end up changing this video to the point where I knew it wasn't going to work. Yeah. And you'd sit there and say, well, now it's not going to work. And they go, yeah, it is. You know, we know better than you. And I, yeah, it would take almost 12 weeks at some stages just to get approval to go and make a five to 10 grand video. Yeah. And so for me, it was like, wake up call number two. Okay, this isn't going to work with corporates if they keep meddling with it. They either have to give me total control or... Well, they make it themselves. If they, they want... make it themselves. If you think you know better, make Correct. it yourself. Correct, yeah. And I was really lucky at the time that there was a company called Two Times You, which you'd know in the sporting world. I do know Two Times You, lovely equipment, very yeah, comfortable. So, so Two Times You, uh, I was... I was friends uh, from cycling with um, 
I'd become friends uh, with Aiden and Jamie, who founded Two Times You. And through cycling and triathlons, I used to commentate the Peter Pub and, and Gatorade triathlons and, and things like that. And Aiden and I had become really good mates. And we'd done a bit of guerrilla marketing together where I was emceeing the Peter Pub and I'd wear two times you wetsuits while I was emceeing and, you know, all that sort of stuff, even when they were sponsored by others. And, you know, it was <laughs> yeah, yeah, cool. I like it. A bit of that sort of stuff. And I'd get them in the media and, and things like that. And, and Aiden was he's probably one of the smartest marketing brains and sales brains I've met in a long time. And he, he, he knew what I was up to and, and, and how I was doing it. And he basically gave me um, clear run to make the content that they needed. And, you know, that business speaks for itself. You know, it's a, it's a unicorn of Australian businesses. Um, It's, it's, gone into one of the most competitive spaces in the world, which is sporting good, you know, sporting wear. Huge business. Nike, Adidas, Puma, um, Under Armour, all of those. Uh, they've taken out skins. They've taken out all the others. And, you know, those boys have moved on from that business now and are sitting on some fat stacks. I've got no uh, doubt. They in, would be fat. Oh, it's a, it's a three, four, $500 million business. Yeah. 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 And, and that working with that and having that ability to, to sort of prove what I knew, um, was great for, for them to allow me to do that. And then that sort of proved me in the market, but I still had this bugbear about corporates. I knew that corporates was where the money was, but it wasn't enjoyable. Yeah. It was almost, you know, and wasn't my ego getting in the way? Maybe. Um, but I'm the sort of guy that if I know something's going to work, then I'll stand by and yeah, you know, I'd rather not do it than do a substandard version of it. Well, you've got to be proud of what you do essentially. Yeah. Well, you know, if my whole business is called viral and it's about making viable viral videos and then the videos don't go viral, <laughs> I'm the one they're going to be ringing saying, well, the video didn't work. We want our money back. And I'm like, well, I sat in the boardroom and told you if you made those changes, it wasn't going to work. So it's actually not my fault. So I'm going to keep the money. And I didn't want those conversations. Yeah. So essentially, um, Combining everything together, I remember I went on holidays with my wife and kids and I remember just sitting on a beach and just saying, you know what, I've got to help the little guy. I've got to help the startups because they're the ones who don't have the advertising budgets to send something viral. They're the ones who can benefit the most from viral. And and then on top of that, um, I watched a Gary Vaynerchuk video where he was talking about you got to try and put – if you want a good business, try and put yourself out of business. And I was like, well, here's the thing. Here's all these startup businesses. They're cash strapped. They don't have big budgets. They can't afford to pay me two and a half, three grand a week to make them a video. So what can I do? I can empower them and teach them how to make their own videos with understanding the Education. I like it. And give them the power because... You know, they don't care if it's filmed on a $100,000 Sony XD broadcast camera or whether you film it on your phone. So why not teach these people how to become mobile phone filmmakers, tell their own story? And that's, you know, and, and I love that. I love working with people because it satisfies my love of stories 
as you know, as a kid, I love knowing everyone else's stories and what's <laughs> going on in their lives. You and Brian. Me and, me and my old mate Brian. And so I'm in this perfect position now where I can get on stage and give people a taste of, hey, you can actually do this. And if you actually want to learn the steps of telling your own story, you will go on and make, you can make as many videos as time will allow you and it won't cost you a cent. Ah, I, I like that. So, and I think that really comes back to everything in life. If you can empower people to do or educate them, then you're going to have a big impact. And essentially that's what you're doing now because you're training so many more people, Jonathan, that with your message, and then they're getting their viral videos out there without you have to actually do the videos. That's exactly right. And, and you know, everyone's story is different, but everyone needs to tell their story. I, you know, I see people all the time who are going to production companies and, and there is a, you know, uh, this is also, well, it's, a, it's a little bit off topic, but to give you an idea of my thinking is that the video production world is on a downhill slide, which you'd think that's crazy because video is more popular than ever. Well, the problem is universities and TAFEs and kids, this generation, this I generation that are coming through, they've grown up with cameras. They make better videos than I'll ever make. Like they they know all the tricks, but they don't understand their worth, and so to get work, they're all undercutting each other. Ah, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. So for someone like me who's come from broadcast world, and you know, even in advertising world, you know, I know people who would charge or were getting paid by big companies two hundred, three hundred grand to make a thirty second ad for a car. Right, that those days are gone. Yeah, you know, it's no longer about the hero TV ad. It's not, it's not working. TV viewership's down. I mean, I was talking about Today, Tonight, and Current Affair. We used to fight over a million viewers. They're now, they were, before Today, Tonight died, they were lucky to be fighting over 180,000 viewers. That's such a big difference, isn't it? Right. So the internet's where it's at. You've got to create your own content, but the internet's matured past the point where you can just turn on a camera and talk and have it successful you have to trigger the algorithm now the algorithm is triggered by all the same things that send content viral videos don't go viral unless the algorithms get input from the viewer so passive viewing is done i mean back in my day we used to share viral videos via email like, <laughs> they were about the size of a 50 cent piece these little videos that you'd have to squint your eyes to watch them yeah, that's how they were sent. You had to, yeah, and your email would be on a list of two, three hundred other people's email addresses. I wish I'd just copied and pasted half of those email addresses. Oh, you'd be laughing now. My list would be massive. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, that's the way the world is. Nowadays, the platforms take care of it for us. They make it a lot easier for stuff to spread. But what they don't do, the platforms, is they don't teach you how to do it. They don't teach you how to tell your story in a way that's a viable for you. Say, go back to your lawn mowing business that you used to run as a kid. <laughs> and I know that was on our last podcast where people, Dale's first business was that you used to mow people's lawns oh, and you I had did. a kick-ass edger. Kick edger. Real good edger. <laughs> right? but, it, but you think about your lawn mower business, if you were launching it today and you wanted people to know about it, if you're the cheap, if you're the cheap Dale's cheap lawn mowing service, you can't go and make an ad or a video about your service that has drones and five or six cameras and is really slick and high end. 
because that's not going to mix with your brand. I'm cheap. Right? So it's not viable. You'd be better off making videos just on your phone while you're pushing the mower. <laughs> Saying, oh, I'm busy. You know, it's Dale here. Look at look this. Look at the edges. Yeah, look at this Kaikuru. It's really running at the moment. Make sure you get, you know, don't let it get into your rockeries. Right? That, that, that's the difference, right? So this, so when I talk about the viable formula and people telling their own stories, you actually have to work out what story is it that you need to be telling from yourself that's going to work because it's like DNA. It's like a, it's a viral DNA. And it's unique to each and every one. That's why there's no one script fits all for everybody. You actually have to work out your own, what your own DNA is. And we do this through the program. We reverse engineer you and 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 work out and decipher what your DNA is. That then gives you the base that you tell your story from, knowing the triggers that you need to hit for it to spread. Wow, bang! So, Jonathan, people are listening, and I'm aware of the time, but yeah. like. Because as you said, mate, video is here to stay. It's only going to get bigger and better because everyone's got a phone in their pocket now that can capture everything. How do we reach out and get a contact to you and see the work you're doing, mate? Because I know there's a lot of entrepreneurs and businesses out there that are probably dabbling in this space, but they're dabbling in all the wrong areas because they don't have the expertise that you've got, mate. So where's the best place to find you? You can find me at virable.com, so V-I-R-A-B-L-E.com. Um, that's a hub website, basically. So however you want to work with me, there's four or five different ways that you can engage. But just hit me up on all the socials. I'm more than happy to, to chat with people and help people uh, straight up. That's something that I really like to do. Probably not the greatest business model in the world, but... Um, <laughs> no, it's, I like it, on, mate. Man. But I've got a number. Of, yeah, I run look. I run online courses, uh, and particularly in these times that we're going through at the moment with quarantines and lockdowns, I think that's important. But I also think it's important that people don't sit back and and waste this time. Yeah. Uh, I think it's easy for people to wake up and be a bit shell shocked and so oh, I'm not motivated today. Nothing's going on. Now is the time to be making your content. Now is the time for you to learn how to tell your story. Now here's the thing about video. If you're new to video. You got to get the bad ones out of the way before the good ones come. So true, so true. Right? Doesn't matter who you are, like the way you talk to camera, you can go to NIDA. I don't care. You can learn to edit from whoever you created prices right. I don't care. <laughs> if you are new to video, you've got four or five bad ones. And you know, yeah, even I go back. You know, I've been making videos since I, I think I was the first kid in Victoria to submit a VCE project on video. So we're talking 1991. I've been making videos that count since then. I was mucking around with video before that, but videos that count, 1991. I go back and watch videos that I made three months ago, and I'm like, oh, God. Yeah, because things change. You get better. You grow. Correct. And you're only going to grow by doing. Correct. So do. Yeah. Tell your story. I think I think that's a really nice way to finish. And I know I mentioned this before and on hashtag keynote speaker. And guys, go and check that out. Um, I was fortunate to be featured on their live video. I think it's the first one you've done. But one of the things I did say is that this is a great opportunity. You just mentioned it right then, Jonathan, that this is a great opportunity to practice, learn, or do something new. All right. And if you're not using it as opportunity, then you're really missing out, aren't you, mate? Absolutely. And I think, you know, you look at that video that we did, the hashtag keynote speaker show, which you can find on my Facebook page. Um, the, the intro didn't roll. 
Yeah, it doesn't matter. Right? And we're sitting there going, oh, hold on, the intro will come in a minute. The intro will come in a minute. Right? And, and in TV days, that would be pull your hair out, lose your job, like staplers flying across newsrooms. Like, that, you know, that's how it used to be received. And, and now I'm like, it's part of the it's part of the authenticity. That's right. We're not we're not expert broadcasters. We're using a software program on a computer through the MBN. Now the MBN's not great, but hey, people understand that. We're human and it's only as bad as we want it to be or it's only as good as we want it to be. And you know what? The intro didn't roll. It allowed me to be a little bit cheeky and no one's really gonna care because what we spoke about for the next hour was 100% pure gold. Yeah. And mate, so true. And it's exactly the same as what we've just chatted about today. And um, I just wanted to thank you, Jonathan, for it feels like we've spent an entirety together today uh, chatting on yeah. both shows. And uh, probably good if you if you want to get a little bit more of background of what I've been up to lately. And you can go on to uh, obviously hashtag keynote speaker and watch the video. Or you've obviously got a really good background here on Jonathan. I think it's so insightful. And, and one of the key messages we both brought across was, you know, use the time now to better yourself, to do something that, you know, you'll look back on one day and go, you know what, coronavirus actually wasn't such a bad thing because I didn't let it be. So, Jonathan, thanks for your energy, mate. Um, you are one of the best MCs I've ever seen. The way you, you know, use that cheeky attitude, um, you get the audience on side, but you also make it fun. And um, I think people can really resonate with that today on the show. So thanks so much, great man. Oh, thank you, mate. It's It's been a pleasure knowing you from the first day that we met on that Big stage uh, for you. If anyone's listening and hasn't watched your TEDx, they have to go and watch it. Oh, mate, thanks, it thanks for the plug. <laughs> well, you know, it's a big thing. And, you know, I, I think, you know, I think people don't, either people don't know about TED or the people who do know about TED understand exactly how important it is. And it's a great platform and it's a real achievement to get yourself on there. So wow. well done. Thanks, buddy. I really appreciate it. Thanks, guys.